Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with the very hydrated Teos Abadia. Hey Teos, how's it going? Uh, it's going great. I'm surrounded by beverages. It's uh, it's everything a growing kid needs. Uh, and you and I are growing these days yeah. just in different ways. Oh, <laughs> we are definitely growing uh, intellectually, <laughs> socially, and physically. Very, very. But much so. there's a lot. There's a a lot to be excited for. It's a lot to grow for, to to be in this world of D and D and role playing games at this moment. So, without any more ado, let's get right into our listener corner. We have two this week. First is from Nigel Rush via Twitter, who says, "I have a campaign." All the characters are seventh level, and one of them died at the end of the last session. Do I start the new character at first level? I am worried about future challenge ratings of encounters due to the disparity of player levels. And I think if you, you know, if you know Teos and I and our backgrounds, you will probably know what this answer is going to be. But we'll we'll take it from a couple of different directions here. Yeah. Uh, first, if if we put up a poll of dms who are in a situation like this without having any other context just seventh level party one dies first level uh and ask this question i bet the answer of a majority and maybe a large majority would be have the player of the deceased character create a seventh level character and off you go uh, this assumes, of course, that resurrection magic isn't available or the deceased character is not in a condition to be brought back to life, uh, because that's always the option, too. And you can do a lot of fun, cool story related things with that. Yeah. But like everything else in D&D, a lot depends on the players and the DM and the social contract that was arranged or assumed when the campaign started. So with that, I will let Teos have his say on this. I suspect that historically this comes from the the way, you know, in the original versions of the game, the way that things played, your character was not the same level as other characters anyway, because experience levels varied by class. So it wasn't a party of fourth level characters. It was someone who was like a second slash first level and a third level and a sixth level. And the game operated with that. Plus, there were like 11 characters, maybe, if you followed the recommendations on an adventure. So it sort of didn't matter what level you were. And you would catch up fairly quickly with the way experience points worked back then, uh, at least to meaningful, some meaningful level of catch up. Now that doesn't really work. Everybody tends to be the same uh, level. You're probably using, if you follow any of the official adventure guidelines, you're not using XP, you're using milestones. Uh, so you will always be behind. So there are all these issues why it doesn't work the way it used to back in the day. And all of that, I think, leads to why today people would give you that answer. You said, Sean, versus back a while back, you know, a decade ago, maybe even longer, most would have said, you start a first level because that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. And so I come back to then these questions. What does the player want? Mm -hmm. What do the other players want? What do you as the dungeon master want? And 
if you as the dungeon master just want to make it easy on yourself and let that player start a character at seventh level and no one objects to starting that character at seventh level, then the answer is quite simple. Start yeah. the character at seventh level. <laughs> and if there's some other reason involved that you would force a player to go back and start a first level character, then that's okay if everybody is on board and you can actually have some fun with that, right? You could have some fun with this is the first level character, everybody else is seventh. So they sort of have to protect that character and the, and the player can get into that mm-hmm. with the understanding that they're not going to be able to contribute as much at, at least in terms of the strength of the party than the other players. They can still contribute as a storyteller. They can still contribute as a world builder but they won't be able to contribute. And as long as that understanding is there, and I would say if you put in a mechanic to allow that character to at some point catch up to at least where they're within one or two levels of the rest of the party, then you're, then you're in a safe, a safer zone to then continue play quote unquote as normal. And I think that's what I'd add to this is that, you know, kind of beyond the question is how you're implementing it and whichever path you choose Put things in place to make this job easier and more fun for the characters. So like if you're going to start at first, then you'll need some catch up mechanic. Right. And, and, and a way to make that first level experience be fun rather than feel terrible <laughs> to the person who's coming in at first and is six levels apart and doesn't know how they'll ever catch up. So you will want to answer those questions. If they're coming in at seventh, you want to have some reason of why is this seventh level person suddenly available? Right. Are they the typical thing of like the captive the bugbears are holding, right? Uh, or are they uh, an NPC that you know in town that you now get to play? And so if depending on kind of what you want to do with that, you can create more of these opportunities to have like an equivalent level character sort of in the wings that actually the player would say like, can I play that person? Right? Can I, can I play the master of assassins we've been talking to periodically? Yes, yes, you can. Our second question comes from Falcon Neil via the Patreon. Everything old is new again. I am sure Sean is venerable enough. Oh, yes, Sean is. To remember this. In an old edition of D&D, Marshall's standard equipment used to include the quote-unquote golf bag of weapons that you needed to bypass monster resistances. Oh, wait, let me get out my cold iron bludgeoning weapon to hit the whatchamacallit. Are the developers creating this situation again with these, you know, weapon specialization properties? Mm-hmm. And wait, let me throw uh, my uh, my Nick weapon and pull my topple weapon out. Uh, should these new tricks be uh, just be class features and not tied to specific weapons? Tayas, you you take this one over. Uh, yes, I am venerable enough to remember <laughs> this. And now <laughs> the the, uh, the three golf bag of weapons was, was a bit silly. I mean, we would all laugh about it because the the thing was there was so much resistance uh, on tied to to monster type that you had to you didn't want to lose half your damage. So you were worth it was worth it to keep this essentially a golf bag of weapons and you'd pull out, you know, your nine iron, which really was your cold iron weapon so you could attack that fey or whatever it was and deal enough damage and this lasted until you landed an adamantine weapon which were super rare but eventually you might be able to get it and now you could just ignore all resistance and you were back into the way you wanted to really actually play so it was just a bit dumb because you didn't really want to do that you just couldn't afford to lose half your damage 
And, you know, I think that, that weapon properties are not quite at this level. Uh, it might be a little bit, right? You might say, oh, nothing's statching, uh, nothing, nothing's standing together, therefore cleave won't work. So I'll pull out my other thing. But I think in general, this is avoiding being the obnoxious level or the silly level of it. Um, but we'll have to play test to really know. What, what do you think, Sean? Yeah, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit there. Please. I think that it, I think that it will get that silly, mm. and for even less of a reason, right? The reason that you had the golf bag in third edition was, like you said, you're doing half damage unless you have all of these different weapons: cold iron here, silver here, uh, adamantine here. And not only that, but you could put other things on it. So you'd have your cold iron axiomatic uh, sword for those chaotic mm. fey. And you could also pull out the axiomatic weapon if you had other chaotic enemies that you were fighting. So it, you, you added even more. But the point of that was you didn't want to do half damage. Now... Yeah. My my counter to that is we often find these optimizing players, and I'm not using that as a disparaging term. It is something that is natural to want to do. You want to, you have the situation, you want to find the best solution to that situation. But often that's, that solution wasn't even necessary. Often doing the half damage, you may end the combat two rounds earlier, but it's not like you were in danger of losing. And that's yeah. the the optimizing that I see so often is optimizing for a problem that doesn't exist. <laughs> well said. You're optimizing to find the best solution to an answer that is already answered. You know you're going to win this combat, but you are looking for the optimal solution to this very small microtransaction that in the long run doesn't add up to anything. You don't save any money in the long run. Um, and so you spend more time switching between weapons than the time it would take to do an extra round of combat mm -hmm. anyway. And I see what could happen with this is we get to something that's even less important in terms of winning these microtransactions, but people will do it anyway. There, instead of, oh, don't stand there, stand there, we're going to get, oh, don't use your topple weapon, use your nick weapon, because you're going to end up over five rounds of combat doing two more points of damage than you would if you toppled, and only two of us would be getting uh, uh, advantage because we're all ranged. So don't, you know, it's, yeah, it's no, that sure. sort of level of thing that, while for certain groups may be fun to discuss, in the overall audience of D&D, you are going to lose more players than you gain by taking that level of specificity and tact tacticity, tacticalness, uh, and, and just completely lose track that this is supposed to be telling a story as well. Well, and, and that's, it's really fascinating design-wise that because resistance in third edition was a monster-driven thing, and because you wanted to yeah. op normally optimize your weapon, right? So you're investing in your weapon. Third edition had this whole like magical properties you wanted to add, but you could only afford but so many. So you generally had like your weapon you wanted, and then you'd have the plain old weapon that's just for this resistance problem. 
And that's why you had that golf bag, bag that way, rather than, say, having three great weapons. You usually had one awesome and then just the other stuff. And you happen to pick something up better, you know, plus yeah. one cold iron, great. But, but you're just a plain one would do. In this case, this is a player-driven choice as to what tactic to use for their weapon mastery. And that's where you end up with exactly what you're saying, where unfortunately someone will break down and say, well, you know, it's an extra 0.5 damage per round when you do blah, blah, blah. And it's 1.5 if you do this other one. So obviously you must make this choice. And you get away from the fun of it. It's not the fun of what you want to do tactically. It's not the concept. It's just some damage problem. And as you said, we don't even need the damage. Players are surviving and their characters are surviving just fine. In fact, maybe too much. And play might be more fun mm -hmm. if it were more dangerous and challenging. But players can't think that way because they read on a forum or on a tweet or wherever I saw a video that says, you, you know, this is the way yeah. to go, clearly. Yeah. Yep. And then you get into the problem of people reading these things on forums and not understanding, mm -hmm. not understanding a what's even being said, but B what it does to the game. So you can look and you can see that this one strategy will optimize your damage or optimize, uh, uh, debuffing monsters right. and it may be totally true but then you don't understand how it's what it's like at the table mm -hmm. when you're taking five extra minutes per round because of saving throws needing to be rolled or everyone having disadvantage so there's less damage being done or you know all, all of yeah. those things that you you see how it works in, uh, in on paper you don't see what that does to the actual gameplay yeah, and, and falcon neil asked this question about whether you know that these should be features like class features and i do like things like this more as class features and i think you can control them a little better because you, you're applying the flavor of the class more specifically you're thinking to yourself as a designer what should a ranger be doing what should a cleric be doing and so you come mm -hmm. up with very different answers when you have one size fits all or fits most, you know, most martial type characters, you end up with a wide variety and you offer this menu of choice. And then folks will, of course, optimize. Um, and, and that's a bit of a shame. But you can also design things. These could be things that are hard to optimize. That's just a lot more work. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know if the team wants mm -hmm. to do that work. Right. That, yeah. And it, it limits when you make something that could be optimized, but you put a limiter on it, what's the first thing that players do? The first thing they do is they ignore the limit, <laughs> right? They try to use it like, like inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. They use it in the most optimal way, even though that's not the rule. Yeah. So that's the first thing they try to do. What does that then force the dungeon master to do? The dungeon master either has to say no, yeah. which makes the dungeon master the bad guy, or they have to allow it, which then makes it twice as powerful or 20 times as powerful as it was supposed to be because the limit was supposed to stop it. So, right. right all of this goes into game design and you, you need to think about it and how the user is going to use this thing that you're creating. And that's why it isn't a paper exercise to do these things, right? You, you, you have to have the play component of it to see when you're doing this weapon mastery use, is it fun and not just fun as a, hey, this is the first time I'm doing it, but as you start to do it repetitively and you start to kind of just do it in the background, is this driving great play, right? Like 
I, I always think about the game Dominion. If you guys have played that, it's a card, a, a deck building game. And uh, I super love it at first. And it has a lot of kind of rich theme and concepts that's baked into the cards. But once you play it enough, usually people playing it are absolutely quiet at the table because they're just thinking about the things they're doing and how to get synergies off of it. And it ends up feeling almost like everybody's playing solitaire at the same table. <laughs> you know, it'll differ slightly between groups, but, but that the game drives itself to just be cold, analytical, calculating, efficient and win. And so you don't end up like you do in some other card games with all this fun back and forth banter. And that's why I don't love playing Dominion as much as because it just drives us to play solitaire with other people <laughs> present. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, we have two other questions, but we're going to handle those next week. Cool. So ha hang in there, Hyperlexic, and hang in there, Chad Lynch, because we have a lot of news and commentary to get to. Uh, the first bit of news and commentary is continuing our look at the new Unearthed Arcana. We're not going to tackle this whole monster at once. Last time we talked about the new weapon properties. This time we're going to talk about the Barbarian. Let's do the Barbarian. So one thing about these design, uh, these this UI, this UA, was that they gave design notes talking about what they changed and in some cases why they changed it which I loved. I love to, that's what I've been begging yeah. for this whole time is let's, let's hear your reasoning behind this so we can see where you're going and see if you are actually getting to the, the uh, brunt of what we need changed. So with the barbarian, we saw that they changed first how rage works in terms of how it, it continues. So one of the issues with rage was we would always get into a situation where the barbarian raged, did their things, and then they were too far away to attack an enemy, too far away to be damaged, and they really couldn't continue their rage then. So you would get into these odd situations where they would try to damage themselves <laughs> or they would attack the ground. And it's again it's that situation where the dm is either forced to say no because that's silly or right have to yeah. allow it to happen even though it made no sense so what they did was they they being the designers added a way for you to continue rage even if these other triggers did not uh keep your rage going and that was you can use a bonus action so taking damage no longer extends the rage but forcing someone to make a saving throw does. Uh, so the focus is now on what you do and not what's done to you, which is good. Yeah. And now it lasts 10 minutes instead of one minute. And now the incapacitated condition stops the uh, stops the rage. And I was happy with all that. Yeah, I and think it's thoughts? generally good. There is a, a you know situations where certain spells and things will now end your rage because they'll prevent you from using your bonus action. But I think that's all fine too. Um, the thing yep. that I so, didn't, yeah. yeah. No, go, you, know, you go. I was just going to say a thing they didn't fix because I, you know, they're, they're clearly like, we've seen this problem. We're doing this. I'm like, great, very cool. But they didn't address the issue of how the barbarian resists physical damage types, the bludgeoning, bludgeoning, slashing, piercing, mm -hmm. But at high levels, 
there's very little of that now. All these monsters, especially after revisions to the monsters, tend to deal more fantastic types of damage, which bypass that. And that takes away a lot of the edge of the Barbarian, which is the Barbarian can sort of survive all this by having the damage, and then their damage output and the consistency of staying up all meant they were powerful at higher levels. But as they are now easier to kill at higher levels, you know, I'm, I'm surprised they didn't do something about that. Because I like that model of the Barbarian well, they of kind of risking but resisting. Yeah. They kind of did at the highest level when you, instead of just being at one hit point, mm -hmm. uh, it's 15th level, but they changed Relentless Rage. So that instead of just, if you would have hit zero, you're at one. It now uh, gives you a number of hit points equal to twice your Barbarian level. So you hit zero, you're going to be at level 30, or you're going to be at 30 hit points at least. Mm. And you can continue to do that as long as you can make your Constitution saving throw, which starts at DC 10. So if you're a Barbarian, chances are you're going to quite often pass that saving throw at least twice. So you're getting... 30, at least 30 hit points once, then at least 30 hit points probably again, and okay. possibly even more beyond that. Uh, but I, I understand what you're saying, and I'm okay with barbarians taking damage. <laughs> I, I almost feel like, especially when the subclasses start to kick in, uh, and I'm sure these subclasses will start to say, well, you also get to take half fire, ice, uh, uh you know, cold, sure. lightning, et cetera, et cetera, um, that we'll see a little bit more of that then come into play. But it's a good point about monsters doing more force or, or other kinds of damage. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of forcing an enemy to make a saving throw extends your rage. At first I read that and I was like, what? How does a barbarian force people to make a saving throw? Uh, I guess you could cast a spell, but what does it, you know, why not oppose checks, right? Because mm -hmm. as a barbarian, as you're raging, you might want to grapple. You might want to yeah. push or knock someone prone. Now, that would be a good use of your barbarian rage to make that opposed check with advantage because it's strength. That should continue your rage to me, Um and then with this new weapon mastery uh, system, I thought, well, at least one thing forces you to make a saving throw. So I guess that could be one well, thing, and that might help barbarians. But then you're dealing damage anyway. Yeah, so. mm. yeah, it is an interesting thing. Yeah, I'm, yeah, it's it, yeah, that that's true. It's maybe a subclass type thing if you have an aura or something like that. Then then that can extend it because you're sort of damaging yeah. through that or causing conditions through that right but yeah i like your idea of yeah. so i'm not opposed to yeah a, a post check should also do it and then you can have barbarians doing all sorts of grapples and and pushes and knocking prone and and that would work so go there uh they added the new weapon mastery feature for the barbarians at first level so we talked about that last time at second level you get primal knowledge, which unlocks non-combat functionality for rage. What does that mean, you ask? <laughs> I'm glad you ask. You can make the following as strength checks, even if it normally uses a different ability. Acrobatics, intimidation, perception, stealth, and survival. 
So, you know, my thought is, all right, I'm raging and I'm going to use my strength to make a intimidation check. Makes sense. Acrobatics check. Okay. Why not? Perception. Mm, okay. Stealth. I am angrily sneaking and survival. And I get what they're doing, right? They want these things to be something barbarians can do outside of combat while they're raging. I just wish they wouldn't have worded it the way they did. Mm-hmm. And and they tried to throw in a, right? They tried to throw in, well, this is more about your savage instincts than it is your... I would have just preferred them say, on these checks, you have advantage while you're raging. Yeah, yeah. That, that don't probably... tie it to don't don't yeah. don't tie it to strength, because it does practically the same thing, right? Instead of making a dexterity check uh, with your stealth, you're making a strength, probably getting an additional plus two or plus three. Uh, just just have advantage and mm-hmm. use your dexterity for stealth, or use your wisdom for survival, it... and let that advantage uh, be do the job. They're often, I think, a Afraid that you might already have advantage from something, and so then it's no benefit at all. Um, or you may wish to do something that would grant advantage on top of it, and and so they they're trying to switch that bonus. But I agree that like perception sort of funny. What are you doing? Like smashing all the things in the room to look for something, right? Like you know, <laughs> moving enormous rocks to find where the foe is. But stealth, it's just I don't know. Explain yeah. the strength of that is is really quite hard and. And so, yeah, I, I, and, and maybe just the answer is take stealth off the list. Um, well, I'll, I'll jump ahead and tell you why also that I want to switch this mm-hmm. is because, let me find it here. At, uh, I put this in the, okay, Indomitable Might moved from 18th to 9th level. So mm-hmm. at 9th level now, you can... If you roll lower than your strength right. on a particular check, you get to use your strength instead. So at ninth level, you're at least probably at an 18 strength as a barbarian, possibly higher. So you never have to worry about rolling in athletics, acrobatics, intimidation, perception, stealth, or survival check when you're raging because you can always just use your strength score. So you're always at a 16 to 18. Um that's why I I want just advantage, and uh, it just seems weird. It also, and, and we've seen this in a couple of the playtest areas. It, it intrudes a bit upon the other classes. This isn't too bad in that you're probably out of combat, and not going to want to burn too many rages at normal levels of play. Um, but there is that chance that someone will say, like, no, let me do the stealth thing. I'll burn a rage. And the person who would normally stealth kind of goes, that's my thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 I I like the idea of it. And for me, it would just be fixed if you just gave advantage on that, because then you don't have to worry about, oh, it's not a strength check for me. It's I have advantage mm-hmm. on my when I rage, so I don't have to worry about that. Well, I'm always going to get a 20 on my perception check if I'm raging because it's a strength ability for me now. So there you go. Uh, just doesn't quite work together. 
what do I know? <laughs> well, looking at these other ones, we've talked about a couple of, of them already, like Relentless Rage. Um, Relentless Rage is one of the few that moves to a higher level, but a lot of things move to lower levels. And we'll see this also with the other classes in mm -hmm. this packet. And that's where I sort of think like, wow, you've just given everybody weapon mastery. That's more damage. You've lowered all these damaging capabilities to happen earlier. So they're happening for more of your career. Uh, you're straight up stronger, you know? And so how do I say in, in good faith, Jeremy Crawford, that um, the 2024 Barbarian is just fine to play right next to the 2014 Barbarian. Uh, and also, if all the classes that are new are doing all this extra damage and extra capabilities, uh, are we really saying that the encounter guidelines can stay the same and that current adventures remain the same? Or do we have to change encounter guidelines and current adventures, 2014 adventures, are no longer a challenge? Classes content? Yeah. Yep. It's, it is it is interesting. Uh, is there anything else that you want to talk about here? I th you know, most of it is just moving things around a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, moving it to a different level. Yeah, I mean, there's more I damage. too much else to say. Coming in, I think, in fun ways. So I think I'm generally okay with the changes. It's just that this isn't just mechanics. It, it really is strength. Like, they are more capable. And so that's a power-up. Yep. And we've seen that in other cases. And so it's like, well, some, what's that? How, how are you going to deal with that? Are they going to tone it down later? So well, we'll see when the uh, when the feedback form goes up, uh, what what people end up saying about it. We also last week didn't talk about the April D and D community update, which had some pretty interesting information. So we thought we'd do that now. This was a blog that followed up on some of the information and feedback that they gathered during the D and D summit. And Teos, of course, was at that D&D Summit, so he might have a little more information to add about some of these things. The first was that they reaffirmed in the, the community update that the 2024 core books are intended to be a continuation of 5th edition and not a new edition. Uh, how does that set with you? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that was certainly a major point that they made there. Um... I, they they they're this is clearly i mean at this point i don't think they can step back from this right because they've said it so forcefully so uh the idea yeah. is that everything should play together and that it doesn't matter whether you have you know two players and one plays the 2014 barbarian and one plays the 2024 barbarian and so that becomes then the measuring stick i think we have to ask ourselves as we're assessing this is is that really true right are we still feeling like you can run that encounter that was published in 2015 and there's no problem at all. We'll see. They also mentioned that the school program with free digital kits as well as physical kits are sold out, uh, but a second set is being created. And they also want to find ways to provide educators with D&D uh, &D Beyond functionality for free and you know other ways to support these school club uh, game programs. And you know what I'd say to that? You have the basic rules. You know, it's wild to me that when you look at the digital kits, they don't point to the basic rules and they should. 
they should absolutely break down things and say, hey, you have a spell list in these pregens that we gave you. Go to the basic rules, get them. <laughs> you know, and, and if you really want to help them out, well, put those spells on one sheet so they don't even have to look it up. But but that kind of to me, it's all there. Just break down the basic rules in a more useful way and, and you're set. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the digital aspect of this is something obviously that's important. But one of the things that we hear is I want my kid to play D&D because I want them off the computer. I want them off their phone and their tablet and their switch and whatever other digital device is either in their hands or implanted in their brains. And I want them sitting at a table looking at other people and talking. Yeah. And so to point them to D&D Beyond, while certainly much easier to navigate, sort of defeats that whole purpose. So I, I, I urge them to be careful with pushing that digital thing too far giving it as a tool for the people running the clubs absolutely i think that's valuable but giving it as a tool for the for the kids or you know for the new players to be automatically going to i i would want them to tread lightly on that yeah agreed 100% uh yeah and speaking of D&D beyond accessibility was brought up at the summit and they said that they're going to work with experts to identify improvements in that area. Yeah, I hope that includes international affordability and translating the basic rules, which to me is great. It's already free. Nothing that you lose there. Just translate those and bring in more people to check it out. Mm -hmm. uh, this this uh, update also reiterated that D&D Beyond would be the front door to D&D as opposed to the Wizards of the Coast main website. And so they want to continue to move things to the D&D Beyond website, although that will be a long-term project to get that fully implemented in that direction. I mean, I hope they don't delete and lose okay. all the content there. I've made that point in the past. <laughs> we'll see. Mm -hmm. They talked about the D&D Beyond third-party marketplace. Planning uh, is still in its infancy, but they will start rolling updates, FAQs, and feedback sessions to creators and publishers, although they said, do not expect anything coming soon. <laughs> There's so much I can <laughs> say about that. Much to add. That marketplace is, is yeah. uh, I think it's a really nice intention. And, and the good part of it is it really shows that the team is, is super wanting to be responsive after the whole OGL debacle. But I, I don't know how you make this work. Um, and so when they say nothing soon, I, I, I absolutely believe that there's no way they'll do anything soon. And it's not because they're <laughs> stalling. I think it's because this is such a can of worms, let alone the VTT marketplace. Yeah. But I think this is all it's, it's a huge, huge problem to try to do this well. And, and I'll yeah. be shocked if they if we see anything this year that's concrete. Yeah. Yeah. All of the intricacies and pitfalls aside you and i have had some good conversations with other people especially third-party publishers mm -hmm. about this whether just the idea of it is a good thing or not and it's so it's so odd to me it's it's funny that you know 
people will say, oh, Wizards of the Coast, they need to better support third party and they should reach out and they should help third party publishers who are publishing things that they can't. So it helps grow the industry. And then as soon as they announce that, oh, we're going to support third party publishers, we get people outraged that they're going to support third party publishers. And it's often the same people uh, who want support, but then don't want support in any way except the exact way that they want support it's just sort of it's it's either good or it's either a good idea or a bad idea if you put aside the intricacies and and all the yeah. details the legal details the monetary details uh so you know is it good or not decide and then work work from there yeah okay uh of they talk about events in addition to a lot of cool plans for Gen Con, we will have our next Creator Summit at the convention in August of 2023. That is in Indianapolis, Indiana. Event details will be published right here. Not right here at the uh, Mastering Dungeons, right here <laughs> on uh, D&D Beyond. And they will also not be attending Fan Expo Canada this year and will update their schedule accordingly. So... I'm sad about the Fan Expo Canada because that's the closest convention to me of of any size. It's only a couple hours away from Western New York. So uh, I was right. looking forward to going and getting involved, and now they're not going to be attending there. Uh, but Gen Con Creator Summit, what do you think? Uh, it's really expensive to go to Gen Con. And, you know, last time they flew people out, and I'm trying to think to myself, you know, could I go there I don't, I don't know if i can <laughs> like if i have to pay my own way it's an expensive thing to go all the way out there but but i think maybe you know for folks who are already going that could be really good um it depends on i, I think at this point and what i've tried to say on my blog is this is the point where i think it's now good to focus it was good to hear from a wide variety of folks now get specific questions and bring people to these sessions that can answer and give you feedback on the specific questions you have Right. So if you need feedback on the marketplace, bring in people who can give you those answers. If you need feedback on a streaming program you're going to do, you know, like for you're launching this channel that we're going to talk about, um, then get people in who can give you that feedback. Like start fine tuning and be prepared and give everybody the agenda early. <laughs> yep. Okay, yeah. So let's let's quickly go through uh, the VTT. The next step is a pre-alpha test with a small group of players and expand from there. And they, they're going to give a, an email that they shared with the summit attendees that you can communicate directly with Wizards of the Coast. So that was in the community update. Let's talk about this new streaming channel. Hasbro and E1 have announced that there will be a free D&D streaming channel the Dungeons and Dragons Adventurers Fast, F-A-S-T, stands for Free Ad-Supported Streaming. This channel will be available on, quote, a number of platforms. Uh, E1 has not yet cut distribution deals, according to the company. What are they going to show on this? Teos, I'm going to let you give all the highlights of that. Whoa, what's happening, Sean? It's going to be episodes of the animated <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons series. That's how the cartoon starts out. 
Uh, originally aired from 83 to 85, so we get to see that. I'm, I'm all for that. I mean, I own the DVD, but it, it's, a, it's a blast, and, and I'm a big <laughs> fan of it. Uh, then they have Encounter Party, a podcast with, currently in its form, that follows professional actors and improv artists and new cast member Carrie Payton from The Walking Dead, and it's based in the Forgotten Realms. Then what else do we have, Sean? We have Faster Purple Worm Kill Kill. It features a party of first-level characters each episode going off and getting killed horribly by challenges that are far, far beyond their means, which I think will be hilarious, at least for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, There will be a revolving cast, including the series co-creator Matthew Lillard. So, okay, that's that's a thing. Uh, they're also going to have Heroes Feast. It's part talk show, part cooking competition. Um, Mike Herzek, uh, I can't pronounce that, uh, Heraz. Uh, and so he's he's the master chef. And Sujata Day will prepare dishes for guest diners each and every episode. And of course, there will be more. Yeah. But those are the, because it's going to be, you know, a streaming channel and 24 hours and so yes so uh that's a lot of content now you have a lot of creators out there in the world some you know very popular and some looking to become very popular so it's going to be interesting to see all of this it's going to be interesting to see who is chosen it's going to be interesting to see the types of content that they choose to put on uh it it will just be interesting an interesting experiment to see how they do it will i watch it probably not (laughs) (laughs) or very i you know i'll watch the dnd cartoon just to remember what it was and maybe if something catches my fancy i may check in every once in a while but I just can't see myself watching too much of it. I can only imagine all the iterations this has gone through uh, inside the company to try to think through how to do this. I, I bet this has been yep. on the table in some way for ages. And in fact, one of the things we've talked about on the show is that E1, which was purchased for a billion dollars uh, as an entertainment platform, mm-hmm. has done very little. and. You know, we've heard recently that it's being shopped around to companies to sell off. So it's very strange to me that you would create a sort of one of the first obvious things coming really from the E1 side, this free streaming channel all focused on D&D. But you're trying to sell E1. Are you also trying to sell this channel? Are you trying to sell anything else? Like it's it's a it's an interesting piece that, that I'm not sure how it fits into the puzzle of what Hasbro is trying to do. But I'm glad there's an experiment. You know, this even if it doesn't succeed for long, it'll be interesting to to, to poke around at the demographics, at the audiences, and maybe we can all learn a little bit from it for the hobby. Yeah, I mean, one of the rumors that has been it flies around always. It flies around every year, and that is, will would Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro sell D and D? And if you're going to sell D&D, you want it to be at the, at not even the rules. You want the buzz around it to be in the best state possible. And you want to find 
the Disney or whatever major person, individual company could that could afford, say, a billion dollars for you know for D and D to have all. Oh, look, we have a movie franchise. Oh, look, we have a twenty-four hour streaming channel. Oh, look, all of this could be yours if the price is right. And so, you know, introducing this now and trying to make it make it something that could be successful in the short term, even if it's not successful in the long term, but getting the buzz about it out there just to be one more thing that you would be buying if you bought D&D is an interesting uh, tactic that one might use. Yeah, and I'm not saying that D&D is going to be sold, right? And I know you aren't either. But I think this is the kind of thing one does when one is fishing and contemplating those possibilities. Um, Mm -hmm. And and we don't know what the execs are doing. But as the execs who have wanted to clearly uh, put a laser focus on D&D and make D&D into an enormous brand, as they try more and more things around it, one of the options is always going to be, especially if it's not hitting the targets, well, what if we sell it? Because what's the easiest? What's the easiest way to make a billion dollars with D and D? Sell it for a billion dollars. Yeah, uh, it becomes a billion you. dollar brand right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so so that is the news on the stream. We're, we'll be very excited to see how that goes. Next up in the news is Critical Role will be launching a new stream to promote their upcoming role playing game. So one of the role-playing games that they are putting out is called Illuminated Worlds. That's the system name. So this stream is going to be called Candela Obscura. It will be a monthly series, and the uh, role-playing game is at, going to be in the horror horror genre. Now, I don't know if it, that's just the stream or if that's the game itself, because they originally said the game would be adaptable to many different settings. So they may be just taking this game that could be used for different settings and putting this sort of uh, the horror spin on yeah, this particular stream. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the series is described as a drama that follows an esoteric order of investigators as they use centuries of knowledge to fight back a mysterious source of corruption and bleed. Uh, Each episode will have an inciting incident that forces the team to uncover and solve the mystery at hand. So it looks like a monster of the week kind of uh, Mm -hmm. situation stream. The role-playing game itself uses a D6 pool. There will be a quick start version of the role-playing game released with the show. And then the the full role-playing game at the end of the year. The first episode will be out on May 25th, so not very Uh far away. And each is is designed to stand alone, so you can easily watch one episode without having to watch the whole series. And this is the first show to feature a role-playing game created by Critical Role. Should be really interesting to see how that does. both the game and the stream and, and how they intersect, right? Because nobody can tie those two things together the way Critical Role can. And that's their unique yep. piece, right? They're a unique intersection. So can they leverage this to finally be a really blow up uh, RPG side? Because so far the Critical Role books have been fine, but they're not enormous, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not shattering sales or anything. So could right. this 
get to that really high level. It's perfect time for it, one could argue. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that will be interesting business-wise to keep an eye on. Did you want to talk about the Kickstarters this week or do you want to push them yeah, off? Yeah, just real quickly, there's a, one called Koboa, which is a South American fantasy setting for 5th edition, Pathfinder 2, and even Cold Press's Valiant. Um, it's an all-South American team of designers and artists. It's hit its goal very quickly, which is awesome to see. Um, it has a number of really nice features about it, so check it out. Link in the show notes or search for Kickstarter and Koboa. A-O-B-O-A. And then Mini Dungeon Tome 2 is a collection of 5e short adventures and one-shots. Friend of the show, Robert Aducci, recommended this one. The page border has a, in, in the book itself has a smart system of color coding and icons to let you know the level, terrain type, and other features of each one. So you can, can very easily flip through. You can preview it, take a look at what you think, uh, and you know, use that in your next gaming session, or sample the soundtrack. It reminds me a lot of Dungeon Delve and its approach. A lot of fun. Check that out as well. Mini Dungeon Tome 2. Now, here on Mastering Dungeons, we are going to get into our main topic. We are covering the Dungeon Master's Guide chapter by chapter. Last week, we looked at chapter one, talking about creating your world and what goes into it. This week, we're going to talk about chapter two, creating a multiverse. So let's create a multiverse. Uh, in chapter two of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Teos, you did a little experiment. Uh, you want to talk about what you did? I did because I was thinking to myself, wow, really? Chapter two is like build the multiverse? And so I went back and I said, well, what do all the chapter twos look like in previous editions? And first edition doesn't really have chapters. It has just lots and lots of sections. But if you sort of think about what is in that sort of chapter two area, it's all about player characters and working with them. So I was like, okay, okay, interesting, cool. And I look at 2E, it's also about character races and species, how to work with them, how to create new ones. Third edition, same thing. Uh, you know, what if you make a monster into a race? What if you do a race variant? What if you modify character classes or prestige classes? I'm like, wow, it's all about characters. And then I look at 3.5E, and that's the first diversion. In 3.5, it becomes using the rules is chapter two. And it covers movement rate, movement rules, evasion and pursuit, pacing, uh, ability checks, rewards. It's really that kind of toolkit of scenarios that come up at the table. And then fourth edition digs into this and runs with it. Pacing, props, narration, dispensing information, improvising, really useful stuff. And even the 4E DMG2 goes in and gives you lots of tools around advanced encounter design, player motivation, small, large groups, stuff like that. And so then I think, wow, how did we go from that history to the multiverse? <laughs> so I just thought that was really yeah. interesting to, to think through that difference. And I think we're going to yeah. see it change and again. So that, <laughs> yeah. And so that, you know, that, yes, I think it's safe to say that we will see that change based on Chris Perkins's, uh, you know, talk. But since we're here, since we're spanning the multiverse, why don't we talk about what this chapter, what this chapter does? So it talks about first, obviously, the planes, because they are going to set your world within the larger sphere of the entire universe, multiverse, however you want to describe it. And it starts by saying the planes, the various planes of existence are realms of myth and mystery. 
And I, I love to sort of take the first sentence and sort of break it down. And so the various planes of existence are realms of myth and mystery. Sure, sure they are, but they're also not. The planes can be a place of myth and mystery. But if you put them in a book, especially in chapter two of a book that most people are probably going to buy and read, then they are no longer a mystery. They, the players know exactly what they are, know exactly what happens there. You know what also can be a place of myth and mystery? A village at the edge of the swamp. Mm-hmm. A, an, an underground city of Mykonids. Any place can be a place of myth and mystery if you set up the story to be one of myth and mystery, one of surprise, one of exploration and learning. Is it more likely that these planes will be a place of myth and mystery? Sure. But any place can be a place of myth and mystery if you work at it hard enough. <laughs> uh, and, and so that's you know one thing about this chapter that caught my attention was it becomes less of a place of myth and mystery when you lay it all out and describe it in a book that probably most of the people are going to buy yeah absolutely and and i think that's what really hits me about this chapter this chapter is like chapter one encyclopedic it's got a lot of lore. It's great questions, great things to ponder. Uh, and in that sense, it's, it's you know, it creates introspection for anybody who, re- like, you're not going to read this and not come up with, like, questions and ideas and, ooh, it would be neat to. But it's nowhere close to being a toolkit or a how-to or anything like that. It doesn't guide you towards it. It just tells you. And, you know, as we've seen, and I was just thinking to myself, you know, when we did that review, of the uh, Modron March classic adventure. It's an adventure that when you think of the concept of it, you think, oh, this is going to be amazing. We are traveling the planes, seeing all that they have to answer. You know, the realms of myth of mis- and mystery are going to come alive. And then you actually look at the words on the page, and it's so boring. It's so everyday. You could be anywhere for a lot of these encounters, and they aren't myth and mystery and... Uh, and, you know, wild changes, they feel like you could be anywhere. So why are we in the planes if we're not going to do this? And, and how do I avoid having that problem happen? Because here we are, you know, many years forward from that time. So how do I make that really, really jump out? And, and this chapter doesn't really have that. Yeah, uh, it, what does it cover? Well, it covers... The material plane, it, and it's two sort of echo planes, the Shadowfell and the Feywild. It talks about the transitive planes, the astral plane, uh, astral plane that leads to the outer uh, planes, and then the ethereal, which leads to the inner planes, the inner planes being the elemental planes, and the outer planes being those areas that are sectioned off by the gods that rule them, and the alignments that, let me say, align... <laughs> with their sort of ethos they also then talk about like the positive energy and the negative energy plane uh it discusses the alternate systems and how you can put them together like the great wheel the world tree the world axis and then others that include some other campaign settings uh what 
what were your sort of overall thoughts on on that chapter? It's, and yeah, it's twenty six pages, and I guess a question yeah. worth asking is: Should the DMG be covering this information, and to what extent? Right? If if we need twenty six pages on the planes, then I think these are beautiful, but they're not that toolkit guide, and should be that. If the answer is no, we don't need 26 pages on the planes, then this should be like two pages summarizing just what you need. And some other book can cover this. Um, and let's get back to actual common useful things that a DM really needs to know, because. You know, I, I've played long enough that I have been to the planes lots of times, but it is far less important to those experiences what someone knew about the planes and rather what someone knew about DMing and good DMing, right? Yeah. And, right. and in fact, I had to write a planar adventure or sort of planar, demi-planar. I had to go to an air node uh, for one of the Adventures League adventures I wrote. And when I looked at this chapter and, and as a writing assignment, I found a few ideas, you know, that generalize what the plane of air is like but nothing that really helped me craft an adventure for it. And then I went on and looked at old editions, and one of them was like, you know, there is a planar node in uh, the classic adventure uh, Temple of Elemental Evil. It's literally just an area of a rocky cavern with air creatures in it. There's nothing to it. <laughs> and a lot of what I looked at was like that. There was really nothing there that really told me, here's how to make an awesome elemental experience. And... So if you're not going to give me that, I don't know that this chapter should be in, in here, or in, at least in this form. Right. The, I had a similar situation with Living Forgotten Realms. There was an epic, I think, or whatever, interactive, whatever you want to call it, that was a race. There, there, was a, there is a famous race in, uh, in the Forgotten Realms. And what's the desert area? Oh, boy, I had Kalimshan? it. Kalamshan? Kalamshan, um, right? Kalamshan, right? There was a race through Kalamshan, like through the desert. Mm -hmm. And so that was what the first through 10th level characters did. The what they call the heroic tier. Uh, 11 through 20 is the paragon tier in fourth edition. And they also had characters that were that level. So we're like, what do we do? We didn't want to put them in this regular race. Because they can teleport and they can do all sorts of things. So we set the this race. This was a multiplanar race. This was a <laughs> elemental chaos race. And so this is going to then, but we didn't want to do, okay, you just make animal handling checks, right, right. to control your mount, and that's and that's it. So we threw all of these weird and strange challenges that would only happen within the elemental chaos, within this multiplanar. Uh, area and these these multi these planar adventures as teos has been saying should not be just your typical adventure but just in this other plane you should be high enough you should tailor it to high level characters so that they have to use resources just to survive they should be having to cast high level spells just to be able to breathe just to be able to navigate, just to walk through this area. Then you can figure out how your encounters are going to be cool, but it does need to be 
different. And if it's not different, you may as well just set it in Kalimshan. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, that, yeah. that's, that's my thought. A hundred percent. And it's like, why does this chapter not help with any of that? Because that's to me what you'd want to come to right. this book for. Yeah. And I want your second option, right? I want four pages about these are the planes and here's two two sentences on each something to make them mythical something that if the player reads they'll be like that sounds cool Mm -hmm. but don't tell them anything else about it don't tell them that in order to survive there you need to do these things let their characters learn that and now i want my big manual of the planes book yeah as the dungeon master, right? Because my players are less likely to buy that than the dungeon master's guy. Then you can do the full explanation plus, and I was saving this for last, but it's going to be perfect to bring up now, have the story elements that are going to make good campaigns and good adventures and good encounters and have the rules element that brings all of this together. So in the abyss, Characters are taking 1d6 points of psychic damage every turn or every round unless they have a protection from good and evil spell going. So even going in there, you better have a high enough level caster to cast that for everybody in your party and or have scrolls of it made before you go or find a way to survive that. Then we can get on with quote unquote normal adventuring, even though it won't be normal. And it's interesting to see that in this uh, book, they tend to have a number of sort of very predictable, repeating kind of approaches to how each of these planes works, which I think actually takes away from their magic. Mm-hmm. And and then they have these optional rules that come with no guidance as to how to work with them and create big problems right and and the approach you said of like say damage every round is something that we saw in like that first edition manual of the planes you'd be like this plane is on fire Mm -hmm. you are in the plane of elemental fire and you're some hellish plane you're going to take damage unless you have protection against fire right and this sort of says well your mind might get taken over by the plane but doesn't tell you how to really work with that. That's that I found that was right. very interesting and, and disappointing. Yeah. So that was the sort of overall talk about the planes in the, in this chapter. Then they get into specific things. The first is planar travel. They talk about planar portals, spells that allow you to travel between the planes. Uh, what did you think of that section in general? This is another example where it's like, yeah, cool. I can use astral projection or gate or plane shift, but like or portal so cool what should i actually do as dm what are the recommendations what's the what has played out well across the years of dnd what should i watch for um how does it vary by pc level what i should choose and there's nothing here really indicating that and that's a real loss yeah it and it's it's odd because they talk about spells like gate and spells like plane shift and they sort of put limits on the spells but the player should know this when they learn the spell mm-hmm. otherwise as we talked about in the earlier section the dm turns into the bad guy the dm you know the player hits a level so they can cast plane shift and they're like okay cool now we're going to go rescue this npc who was carted off 
to the first level of hell. And the DM has to say, well, you know what? I know it's in the small print of this, but you need a planar fork (laughs) that is tied specifically to that plane. And you don't just have those. You you sort of have to find one of those or make one of those. And gate is similar, right? In the spell, it sounds like you can just go. Right. But then this, then the dungeon master guy's like, "Well, you can't really just do that. You need to this, and you need to that, and and it's it's setting up this discrepancy between what the player thinks is going to happen <laughs> and what the dungeon master and these rules in the dungeon master's guide know is going to happen." Yeah, and you know, then it goes into the planes and 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 um, astral and ethereal uh, kind of crack me up because they're just. They're so similar. And we'll see this in Feywild and Shadowfell. It's like, okay, you have these two planes that border the prime. And the astral is the realm of thought and dream. And the ethereal is this uh, kind of ghostly almost overlay of, of the plane. And outside of a few differences, they function very similarly. And, and, and I found that kind of lame, right? Like you can, okay, with the astral plane, you can get there by the astral projection spell or a plane shift or a rare portal. They don't tell you what happens. I mean, the astral projection spell tells you, but they don't they don't really mention what happens when you go through a portal, which is that your body will end up on the other side. Um, and I thought that is an important thing to tell the DM. Um, you can find color pools that lead to the outer planes based on their color. And the ethereal plane, the version of that is you find curtains of color that lead to the different inner planes based on their color. In the astral plane, you have a psychic wind, which is a storm that can blow you off course. You have an ether cyclone on the ethereal plane. And I, and I just kind of had to laugh of like, I, I don't know, you know, like it's fine, but it's just, it's a lot of words to have in chapter two and with very few tips on how to make this really awesome. There's a yeah. short paragraph with ideas for encounters, but they're just such baseline concepts that none of it is close to being anything like a drop in or how to, or how do I make it yeah. interesting on the astral plane? And there's nothing there like that. And this shows the weight of previous editions and previous lore weighing down the next edition. Because as a developer, as a designer, what's what do you, oh, I have to make the new rules for planes. What do I do? I go back and look at first edition, second edition, third edition, fourth edition. It's all it's all convoluted. There's changes, there's there's things, but I have to keep it, I have to use these color pools because. That's cool in their color. And you you don't get the chance, especially if it's a hurried book, as we heard this was, to be able to say, okay, all this lore is cool. How is it going to work in the game? Yeah. And we may need to redesign this. We may need to change this to make it best for the players and the DMs who are telling their stories within this setting that we're building. Yeah. Uh, so we had the Ethereal Plane, the Astral Plane. Uh, we get the Feywild and Shadowfell. Now, these are newer newer additions to the editions, uh, <laughs> but they are the sort of shadows or the bright and the dark that are in the background that sort of support the material plane. Mm-hmm. So the Feywild gets the description, as we have seen over and over, as it being sort of the positive energy ultra vibrant fey uh realm whereas the shadow fell is the twisted gray dark warped version of our world uh so the fey 
wild is where the, you know the fey creatures live where the fey lords the fey kings and queens live whereas shadowfell is the home of the domains of dread and that sort of thing this is another and example it's, you know it's been done before yeah just say like this is another example of where like having played a lot of great adventures in the Feywild and Shadowfell and then played some not so great ones, there are real tips as to how do you make these feel um, that that should be in this book, right? Like why you use the Feywild and why you use the Sh- Shadowfell. It's entirely different storytelling and how you make those things really work. You want to lean into certain elements of those planes for certain kinds of experiences. And there's nothing here that really helps you create that. And maybe for something like the Feywild, you might go and, you know, open up Witchlight and get an example of it. But but there's nothing here telling you how to create that. And that's a real shame because that's what makes it such a difference. And if you don't use this with purpose and with an understanding of what one can achieve with them, then you're 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 going to have a lackluster experience. Right. And your players will. Right. You you have the tendency either to underdo it and make it feel like just another adventure that could be anywhere or overdo it and make it so the story might be really interesting and the setting may be way out there and attention grabbing but then the game starts to suffer because of it and you you need to see that balance you need to see both the story side and the rules side to know how far you can push both directions yep Absolutely. We hear, yep, we hear about the inner planes and the outer planes. The inner planes being the elemental planes. Uh, we get a description of each, including some locations and features within them. So the plane of Earth has a Tao living in the city of jewels. There's furnaces near the plane of fire, the swamp of oblivion, and the plane of water, etc. And then where two elemental planes meet, there is sort of a para-elemental plane. So you get the mud plane you get uh, the steam plane and those sorts mm-hmm. of things, which are really cool and really fun to use when used correctly. Yeah. But again, we don't get a description of how to use it correctly. On the inner planes, oh. there's also this nice sense of when you're closer to the prime, it's more hospitable. And then when it's further away, it becomes the elemental chaos. That's a really nice concept that they've fine-tuned uh, from after third edition which I like a lot because it gives you that latitude of, of uh, a little more latitude than, say, the first edition manual planes, which was when you transport yourself to the plane of Earth, you might show up in solid Earth. <laughs> OK, I guess we're all which, which is bad for you. It's good for your skin. It's oh, good yeah. for your skin. It's bad for your internal organs. Yeah, eventually you become yeah. a diamond. So there's great. Um, but yeah, then the outer planes yeah, is good. these are 16 main planes of deities and powerful entities. And the distinction that's made here is. These are lands that are steeped in those powerful entities and organized according to alignment. So each of the 16 planes is an alignment and uh, each plane is effectively infinite. The travel time is completely up to the deities there slash the GM. And some planes have layers. So each is sort of a a micro plane underneath it, also effectively infinite uh, that can extend the experience. And you can get there via an astral projection and a color pool if you went through the astral or a plane shift spell or some portal that exists. They talk about the sigil city sigil. The city of doors has portals leading to all these various places. 
Um, the river Styx has has weaves through all the evil planes. The infinite staircase may mysteriously have uh, doors that open onto it and allow access between planes. Um, and then each plane has optional rules about that whole idea of the you know the plane will eventually change you. It might even transform you or make you not want to leave. Um, it's all lovely lore. It's often very evocative. But nothing here that really teaches me how to make a planar adventure. And I worry that a lot of this will lead to that sort of, you know, Modron March type result where somewhere up in some DMs or author's brain is the idea that this is amazing. But in practicality, it's just a normal experience. Mm -hmm. Yep. And finally, we get to the other planes. They talk about the Outlands and, and Sigil. Uh, being this, you know, Sigil being the city of Planescape with it's a Taurus around a huge mountain. Uh, we get a little bit of information on demiplanes, which can be as tiny as a chamber or as enormous as, right, an infinite dem uh, demiplane. Mm -hmm. They can be naturally created or or, or created uh, artificially by spells. And then talk about the far realm, which is outside the known universe. And there are no known portals to it. And we wouldn't even know what to do if we entered the far realm uh, because it is supposedly unknowable and unfathomable. And who knows? <laughs> uh, we also get a small description of the known worlds. So the material worlds, material planes, uh, Toro from Toro from uh, Forgotten yeah, Realms, yeah. Earth. Sorry. Yeah. yeah Earth from. Earth from uh, Greyhawk, Greyhawk, Kryn from Dragonlance, Dragonlance, Athos, of course, from a favorite setting of ours, Dark Sun, Aberon, being from Aberon, uh, Birthright, Mistara, uh, those are all named. And so that ends part one. Next time we will get into part two, chapter three, where we can talk about being the master of adventures. So overall, what what was what were our thoughts on on chapter two? I'm going to answer that first, Teos. I'm going yeah. to tell you that I bet if I started with fifth edition, I would open this Dungeon Master's Guide and I would read this chapter and I would be so excited. I would be like, I'm going to run adventures here. I'm going to set adventures here. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I'm going to, but boy, I'm going to. But since yeah. I've been reading the same stuff since first edition it loses that initial coolness and it's just now I'm a game designer and I want to know if I'm running or writing an adventure that takes place on the fourth level of hell, what should I keep in mind yeah. both story-wise and mechanically? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of, you know, there's some neat things. Like when you look at like the, you know, the planar landscape, right? That's cool, you know, and and, and to yeah. sit there and yeah. think through how this edition has taken a particular, you know, look at it is is neat. But yeah, I agree with you. There, there's not much here that's tool-based. And I worry that while this may be inspirational, I suspect that today's readers want it done differently. Um, otherwise, they're going to catch this on YouTube. So, so you have to make it more useful and less encyclopedic. And I just think the game is moving away from that the, the, and has been for a long time, right? Like, and I, I've talked about this before, like, like, you know, there's such a difference between telling me what the history of the cult of the dragon is 
and telling me what to do with the Cult of the Dragon. And you only really need a few ideas on what the Cult of the Dragon is to then take like actual cool things that I can drop in and run with that, right? I don't need pages of the history mm. of Sam Astor or anything like that. Like, just give me what they're up to and some neat ideas, hooks, and I'm off. Like, let's make an adventure, right? Yep. Yeah. So we'll see what happens in chapter three uh, to maybe bring some useful information to dungeon masters who are actually creating their own adventures or using published adventures in a certain way. Uh, so with that, I will say thank you to all of our listeners out there, whether you listen on YouTube or via a podcast, or if you are in tune with us in a, a way, a, a, a telepathic way, and you listen via just your brain cells. Uh, we appreciate that. We have three tiers to our Patreon, though. So if you would like to become a supporter of the show, you have three choices. You could be the master of dungeons, and we thank our master of dungeon supporters for helping us out. You could be a master of the realms. If you're a master of the realms, we put your name or your company in our show notes that everybody who's a patron can see. But if you are a master of the multiverse, well, you get a special shout out on the show. And those include, include Keith Amon, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Chad Lynch, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, whose question we use today, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Krishna Simone, say it or don't, Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you so much. If you like the show, please do consider becoming a patron. You can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash masteringdnd. Also, if you get a chance, leave us a review either on YouTube uh, or, you know, quote, uh, subscribe on YouTube. Leave us some comments, or you can review us on Apple Podcasts or via whatever means you use to listen to this podcast. So, Teos, what you been up to and where can people find you on the socials? Oh, find me at alphastream.org. From there, you can find my latest success in RPGs video and all the other good stuff I'm doing. Where do we find you, Sean? Uh, I am still on Twitter at Sean Merwin, and so is the podcast at Mastering DND. We're also on Mastodon, the show at Dice Camp, and me at Tabletop Social. And of course, we have our Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel where you can subscribe, leave comments, ask questions, etc. So, Teos, hmm. we are through our tour of the planes. So what are we going to do now? Well, it's really obvious what we're going to do in real life, which is we're going to go off and create our new DMs Guild supplement on 120 golf bags that you can use to carry around your new weapons. That's that's what I'm going to do with my free time. Yeah, and I'm going to do, you know, the planar guide to planes, plainly. 